A quick note before we begin. This episode includes discussions about suicide. Please take care while listening. If you're struggling with your mental health, help is available. In the US, you can contact Mental Health America on 800-273-8255. In the UK, the charity Mind is available on 0300 In the last episode, we heard how the feverish excitement around the downtown project was beginning to give way to frustration, confusion and disappointment. There was a political dimension to who was willing to engage with downtown project and who wanted to resist it. Unfinished projects and chaotic management were causing locals and Tony devotees to question the very fundamentals of the endeavour. That's what the PR is saying was happening in Las Vegas, but there's a totally different thing happening on the ground. People begin to ask, what kind of community is this? The community Tony intended to create was the community of Zappos loyal, Zappos employed, Zappos executive people. The community that already existed down here was a grab bag of weirdos working in all sorts of industries. Those people weren't invited into the community of the downtown project. Two years in, the downtown project is in turmoil. I felt like, wow, what a waste of incredible potential. Fuck, like, I don't know if I can stay here if that's what they're asking me to do. This is not as easy and as straightforward as we all thought it would be. Should we tell Tony? Or does he even care? The utopian vision of the downtown project is concealing something toxic. And it isn't just businesses and investors at stake. All of a sudden, so are people's lives. Someone had been found dead behind our building. I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 5 Business is Business. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Remember Josh Levine, who we got to know in episode one? He's the guy who moved to Vegas to work for the Downtown Project right after college as part of a program called Venture for America, which sends young people to work for startups in emerging U.S. cities. At this point in our story, Josh is about halfway through his two-year stint in Vegas. 
As you might remember, one of the projects he was assigned to is in the education division of the downtown project. It seemed like they might be intending to build a small private school, mostly for the children of entrepreneurs and tech people who moved to Las Vegas. Josh is paired with another Venture for America fellow, a young man named Ovik Banerjee. Both are in Vegas because they want to make a difference, but they aren't particularly happy with this assignment. For me and Ovik, I know a big component was that neither of us believed in building that kind of educational system or school. Both of us had a pretty keen eye toward social justice and trying to do things that were doing right by the community. And the idea of building a private school for wealthier people in town and their kids just didn't sit right with either of us. And also the leadership for that function really didn't seem to have a clear vision or understanding of what they were trying to do. For this project they already feel reluctant about, Josh and Ovik are faced with a daunting pile of responsibilities and very little support. Neither of us had any experience in education, and now we're, we're second in command to a $50 million education budget. Like, come on, there's got to be someone around here who knows something about this. It's a little too important to leave two recent college grads. The pair quickly bond over their shared frustration. We were sort of thrown into this hard situation together. We were both stuck in this position neither of us wanted to be in. So there was sort of a lot of looking at each other being like, oh man, this sucks. How did we end up here? Ovik in particular finds this hard to swallow because he really does believe in the downtown project, or at least what the downtown project could be. He really cared about people. That came through so quickly and immediately. And that fed into a lens towards social justice and wanting to do the right thing, not just by the individuals, but by the community. And I felt like as much as any of us, Ovik really felt like he was passionate about this project. Ovik embodies exactly what the DTP says it's about. He basically becomes its poster child. He would very quickly became like a spokesperson for downtown project in a way, or not formally, but just when he would talk to people about it, friends or family or on the internet or anything, he would talk up the vision and what, what we were doing and what we were trying to do and really took a high degree of ownership for it. He would give people tours around town. He really thought that a lot of problems can be solved when people come together in community. This is Ovik's brother, Anondo Banerjee. I think my brother's love language was like acts of service. He just wanted to show you that he cared. He'd uh, cook you a meal. He'd drive you to the airport when nobody else wanted to. These qualities quickly endear Ovik to both his VFA cohort and the Vegas community. He's just very involved. Fluidity is a key operating principle for the downtown project. People are moved from one project to another at a moment's notice. Roles aren't clearly defined. This is true for Ovik. He was excited that he had business cards now, and his business card title was Swiss Army Knife to indicate that he could be used in a lot of different situations. Tony sees this as a way to be nimble and innovative and to avoid the rigidity of normal workplaces. 
Ovik initially likes his grab bag of responsibilities, trying new things and facing new challenges. But his brother's concerned. And the Swiss army knife thing? But then later, he brought that up as another proof point of how there wasn't a lot of structure. He kept on being popped into new situations. And like, yeah, he could handle those new situations, but it was still stressful. I think with a flat organizational structure, like it does allow for a lack of accountability. I, to this day, don't know who were like the point people for the VFA fellows. In fact, Ovik starts creating a handbook for the next class of VFA fellows, so they'd have an easier time adjusting than he did. But before long, Anondo senses that his brother is underwater. My brother in that environment just like piled more and more things onto his plate. So the lack of structure in that environment sort of made him into a load-bearing pillar, if you will. Ovik also begins to feel out of step with the culture of the downtown project. So my brother decided that he didn't drink alcohol after he turned 21. He drank some, decided it wasn't for him. And also he spoke about how there were some like business implications as well, because people would go out to happy hour or whatever, and they would be chatting and they'd talk business. And he just wasn't going to be in those spaces. Like he did not fit in with the party scene at all. Things take another turn when, Anondo says, Ovik is asked to mislead city officials about the DTP's plans. He was working on a container park and he was told to get permits for semi-permanent buildings instead of a permanent structure uh, when he knew that container park was slated to be a permanent structure. He was just told that getting semi-permanent would be easier. For Ovik, the disconnect between what he'd hoped to find in Vegas and what he's experiencing is only growing stronger. Since my brother was like about connection and community, right? One of the things that he thought was really important is like integrity, being truthful, etc. It really rubbed him the wrong way that he was being told to essentially lie. And he didn't appreciate the fact that he was being put into a position by this job to lie to the local government. This haunts him. Ovik's feeling isolated, confused and overwhelmed. But he struggles to know what to do. Without much structure at the DTP, it's unclear who he should turn to. He also feels pressure to stay positive. After all, everyone's supposed to be happy. When you just looked beneath the surface of the downtown project, it seemed like there was a lot of fear and stress. And like, I'll be honest, like, there was a weird amount of fear for a place that was supposed to be unicorns and sunshine. On the education project with Josh, this sense of dread only grows. He felt incredibly uncomfortable being involved in crafting the curriculum for children when he didn't have any background in creating curriculum. Eventually, 
Ovik decides to take his concerns about the downtown project to the top. So Ovik wrote this email to Tony expressing a lot of his concerns about the project and the core of it were the feeling that the culture mission and core values of the project really hadn't been defined or made clear, even though we were talking about culture all the time. It's a calm, measured email, and it clearly comes from a place of wanting the best for the downtown project. Ovik focuses on three main issues hindering the success of the DTP. The lack of a clear mission, the lack of accountability, and the lack of open communication amongst staff and leadership. Even though people are around each other all the time, we just had a monthly downtown lowdown. That's what we, we branded it. I worked with one of the fellows to run that, um, but it was only once a month and sort of outside of that, there wasn't really any space. And even inside of that, there wasn't any space to talk about challenges we were facing as an organization or problems or criticisms or to work through difficult things. There was really no no space for that in the project. And so as Ovik said, you know, rumors filled in the gaps and that created a difficult environment. He also talked about how uh, just a lot of people were really unhappy, sort of secretly unhappy, people who are part of the downtown project. Ovik writes, quote, If you took a poll of DTP employees and asked them how many of them were happy with their jobs, their day-to-day, I wouldn't be surprised if 70 to 80% of them would respond that they are unhappy. Not something you'd expect from a company that's built on the foundations and culture of Zappos.com, a company known for its culture, so much so that delivering happiness was born out of it. Ovid concludes the email on a hopeful note. Quote, I want to be able to continue to defend DTP to friends and strangers as I have over the past year as an organisation with a mission worth fighting for. Selfishly, I want to be able to say, again, that without a doubt, I want to be here in Las Vegas for a minimum of five years. Although we've made mistakes in the past, we've shown that we can learn from our mistakes as well, and I want DTP to continue to grow. Most importantly, I want DTP and its employees to reach their fullest potential, in the process giving the city something completely new and novel to call its own. Who knows, maybe helping change the world in the process, in some small regard. After he sends the message, Ovik is really worried about the repercussions. He tells his parents he's afraid the DTP will fire him. So my parents were like, good, you should have sent that email. Sounds like there's a lot of problems. Also... They'd be stupid to fire you. You're the only one telling him what's going on. <laughs> and if he does fire you, good, come home. Inondo says Tony's reply is blunt, dismissive. Tony says that things take time and directs Ovik to speak to his manager, a person who doesn't really exist since Tony did away with such hierarchies. Not a very encouraging response from a man who's famous for prioritising company culture above all else. It was such a non-response from my memory that my brother was just like, this is, this is what I was stressed out about the whole time? This nothingness? Like, you didn't even take me seriously. So, yeah, just disappointment. Ovik is crushed. When he mentioned to us before he came to visit us over the holidays that... He'd found out what he didn't want to do with his life. 
this position, this project was supposed to be a focusing in on a real world example of a creating community and connection. And all he'd gotten out of it is everything that he didn't want to do moving forward. On January 5th, 2014, the leaders of the Downtown Project and the Venture for America Fellows have a big meeting to discuss what the new year has in store. Josh looks around. Everyone's there, except for his friend Ovik. Hours went by and Ovik didn't come to a meeting. And Ovik was super reliable and an on-time person. Maybe the meeting had just slipped his mind, but something feels off. We looked on his social media and his Facebook had been deactivated. This is someone who is, is, is on the social media. I got a phone call from my mom asking me to call my brother because they had gotten a weird call from the downtown project. I called my brother two or three times, went straight to voicemail. Anondo, who's in university at the time, doesn't think much of it at first. He hadn't picked up the phone. Not a big deal. I wasn't super surprised. My brother was really bad at picking up the phone from his family. So I was like, all right, let me, let me get some breakfast. So I went to the meal hall, ate some food. And as I was leaving the hall to walk back to my dorm. My, I don't know who called. I think it was my sister. My sister calls and all I can hear is screaming, crying. My mom is in the background just weeping and my sister is trying to talk to me and I can't remember exactly what she says and then my dad took the phone and he's also weeping and he tells me that they found my brother's body Outside of his apartment. Ovik had jumped from his apartment building. He was 24 years old. I go back to my dorm room and I just I just sit there for a moment. I honestly don't know how my thought process and my 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 roommate's not there at the time, and I was like, I can't be here with anybody else right now. So I, 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 I walk to our counseling center, and I remember really clearly just every time I walked past somebody, I was thinking, it's just a normal day for you. And you don't know what's just happened. And I go to the counseling center and I just sign in. And when they they ask me for the reason of my visit, I think I just put, my older brother has just died. 
And I remember <laughs> this poor lady. Uh, this this lady comes out and she's, she's like, Hi. Is your intake form accurate? And she's asking me because, like, I'm just sitting there. And I think, like, when she's... It's like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the form's accurate. And she just takes me to this room. And the second that door is closed, I just, I just collapsed. <laughs> it is such a strange feeling to be older than your older brother. My 24th birthday was really fucking weird. And at some point, downtown project leadership called us to come to Tony's apartment. And we all went there together. Some of the fellows had heard something about a body being found in the area earlier that day had that terrible sinking feeling where you're like hoping, hoping that you're wrong, but you are pretty sure you're not. There, in Tony's apartment, the fellows received the news. I don't quite remember all of it, but I feel like we all just started crying. I mean, it was just like, even after having that feeling of like, you know, it's just so shocking, so shocking. Did not see that coming at all. After Ovik's death, the Venture for America fellows struggle to process what has happened. I was angry at Ovik for doing it. I now know it's like a common, common thing to be angry at people who commit suicide. I was angry at the project, downtown project, and Tony for not supporting him in the ways I thought he should have been. All of the fellows, we were all, at least as far as I could tell, just really upset with ourselves, you know, wondering if there was anything we could have done. Andrew Yang, the founder of Venture for America, comes to Vegas. He flew in right away, and he sat with us, and he was with us. That's my memory of it. I really appreciated that from him. It was very, very clear that he cared very deeply. But he was totally distraught. I got the impression that whatever he thought he might have been able to do to prevent that from happening was like his biggest regret of his life was how it felt. It was like he was just totally couldn't believe it and just really, really, really upset. For Josh, Andrew Yang's response is in stark contrast with the official DTP reaction. Downtown Project didn't offer that kind of support at the time from my memory, for me. And Tony? Tony, I think, is just that way. In the same way that he's, like, a billionaire who walks in the room and is, like, quiet and reserved. It's just, like, he's not going to be the guy who is crying with you. Josh remembers Tony being cold and detached in this moment. For whatever reason, he seems unable to really be there for the community. I don't really fault Tony for that, but organizationally, the skills and leadership didn't seem to be there to show up in the way that I think I would have hoped. 
Ovik's death rocks the whole downtown project. But tragically, it isn't the first time this has happened. In the year prior, two other people who worked with the downtown project died by suicide. Jody Sherman, the 48-year-old founder of Ecomum, a tech startup Tony funded, and Matt Berman, the 50-year-old founder of Bolt Barbers, which was housed in Container Park. So when Ovik takes his life, people take an especially hard look at Tony. What do these deaths say about the community you're supposedly creating? Do they have something to do with your obsession with happiness? Tony said this rate of suicide is like on par with Las Vegas more broadly. And it was sort of like, really? You think this is normal? That was hard to to hear. Um, But I also think it didn't feel like they were trying to brush anything under the rug to me. It felt more like they didn't know what to do. But Ovik's death is a turning point for some. Several of Tony's biggest fans, like Mayor Carolyn Goodman, begin to question Tony's philosophy. She said, following these deaths, quote, he's big on fun, he's big on collisions, and there's one thing I'm missing there. Happiness you have to earn, you have to achieve. You can't make them happy. I believe Tony Shea's response was basically bad things happen. We should keep moving forward to continue doing the good of the program. There was something cold about Tony Shea's and like the downtown project's response in that it was like, well, back to business. And I find it hypocritical for a space that is supposed to be around happiness and community to not make space for the very human emotion of grief. Tony does enlist the help of a crisis counsellor, Kimberly Knoll, who tries to address some of these very gaps. In comments to the press, she takes aim at the culture of super-positivity at the downtown project. If we negate the negative emotions in our lives, she tells reporter Nellie Bowles, it takes us away from happiness and brings shame. The pressures are the lack of being able to confide with people, having to put on a vest or mask, and having to say everything's great. Ovik's funeral takes place in his hometown of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Downtown Project did pay to fly people out and house them in like hotels so they could attend the funeral, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, Downtown Project also paid to move all of my brother's belongings from his apartment in Las Vegas to my parents' house in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Not insignificant cost. My dad was offended by Tony Shea's response. My dad saw his response as like a incredible lack of leadership. From this point forward, I didn't really give a fuck about Tony Shea's opinion or his words or anything like that. People have conflicting memories of whether Tony attended or not. But it's clear that Ovik was part of a community. The VFA fellows created a book of memories of my brother that they brought to the funeral. I felt like I got to know him better than I ever had. We had his high school friends and college friends and family telling me stories about him and sharing sides of him that I'd never heard before. It was 
that part was wonderful, really, because it just brought more sides of him to life that we hadn't necessarily seen in Vegas. But it was also obviously terrible. <laughs> it was really, really uh, a rough time for everybody. The thing that sticks with me is like just such a relationship person. He would have been a great 40-year-old. You sort of had the sense that as he grew up, he would be that much more likable and enjoyable and just a person that you'd want to that you'd want to grow old with. As the fellows gather to say goodbye to their friend, Ovik's uncle notices something unsettling. My uncle mentioned this very odd interaction where there would be groups of VFA fellows in little circles chatting with each other. And then one of the representatives from the downtown project would sort of just circle the room and approach these little circles. And whenever he approached the circles, all the conversation would just die. And it just looked like he was keeping an eye out to make sure that nothing untoward was being shared or said. What sort of business has an environment of fear? The stakes for being an employee for a business should not be so high that you're scared. Do you have any questions for anyone at the Downtown Project or anything you would have wanted to say or even to to Tony? I guess my question for Tony would be, why is your idea of happiness so fragile that it pushed all other emotions out? And did you know what sort of environment you had created when you did that? The news of the deaths at the downtown project reverberates across the city. That put this sort of like echo of reality through the community. Owen Carver, a former employee of Zappos, who was part of the tech scene in Vegas. It was really devastating, super sad. And the hope of having a vibrant startup scene, in a sense, where like ideas can become reality and you can make the world better that way, there was now a crack in that vision. And the pressure to be happy, the constant partying, the avoidance of conflict, the consequences of this atmosphere couldn't be more dark. What's the culture there? What are the interactions happening between people? And why would that seem so dire? There should be some way to feel like you can exit this train. And I feel like what kind of conversations we're having that made someone feel like that's not okay and there's no way out. So those question marks just sort of lingered in my mind. These tragedies seem to mark the beginning of the end for the downtown project. There's this sort of like uh, momentum to a lot of downtown project activity and, and that kind of stopped, I think, a lot of it. Josh Levine echoes this. After Ovik's death, any illusions the fellows may have had were shattered. We all had our challenges with downtown project in different ways, but this was like, such a sharp escalation and also distillation of what was wrong with the project that I think at that point all of our time was numbered. 
Indeed, following this tragedy, Venture for America severs ties with the DTP. Like, systemically, the one thing that they did that I appreciate is they stopped sending VFA fellows to the downtown project. At the time, I believe the downtown project was the single biggest project VFA was working with, was partnered with. So that had the most VFA fellows there. After my brother's suicide, they got pulled out and they stopped sending people there. Meanwhile, in this tumultuous period, locals are also starting to scrutinise the whole enterprise. I began questioning some of the investments Downtown Project was making. Paco Alvarez, the curator who was hired by Tony to help invest in the arts. What I always thought to myself is, why didn't they do a survey of the businesses that were already in the downtown ecosystem? And just simply ask those businesses if they needed a helping hand, an investment, an enhancement. Instead of trying to work with businesses that were already there, they decided to replicate businesses that were already there. If the downtown project is supposed to benefit the community, it doesn't have its priorities straight. They invested $100,000 in a flower shop, you know, in a neighborhood whose average income is $32,000 a year. Why did we need a barber shop when we had one right next door? The businesses the DTP supports seem to be mainly for a particular demographic techie newcomers from out of town with bougie tastes. Beloved punk venues and dive bars have given way to donut shops and craft beer spots frequented not by locals, but by Tony's associates. People would text me, they would call me, they would ask me questions like, why would they invest in something like that? Why would they do this? The pretense of community building is falling away. It's starting to look and feel like straight-up gentrification. They began buying properties in downtown Las Vegas uh, considerably higher than what they were worth. And I don't think Tony was probably not informed of this. And I don't think any people that were making these decisions to buy these properties realized how they upset the entire real estate market in downtown. It's textbook. Rents begin to soar. Locals are priced out. And all of a sudden, a property that was appraised for $500,000 all of a sudden was purchased for $2 million. It makes me even question, was he in his right mind back then? Because in fact, behind all the purchases and new businesses, the downtown project is struggling to stay afloat. Many of its investments are hemorrhaging money. And in September 2014, Tony makes a dramatic move. There was a massive layoff that took place at Downtown Project. 30 people were laid off. They called them the Dirty 30. I knew most of those people. About 10% of the Downtown Project staff are cut. And with them go many important DTP projects, like the Learning Village, an education space in Container Park, which hosted community classes and workshops. Then, all free music programs, tours and services for families and children are cut. Initiatives that were meant to benefit the community rather than simply generate revenue are the first to get the axe. Then, the downtown project ceases operations at Factory, 
This, remember, is the new manufacturing hub in Vegas, which was meant to provide thousands of jobs for locals. The reasons for its closure are complex. Some argue that Tony didn't invest enough money in it to ensure its success. Others claim he just became disinterested with the project. When asked about the businesses shutting down, Tony says Factly has nothing to do with him. And in the midst of these collapsing ventures, Tony tries to absolve himself even further. He says, quote, I am the CEO of Zappos.com, but I've never referred to myself as the CEO of Downtown Project. With businesses and community enterprises falling apart and people losing their jobs, the atmosphere around the Downtown Project becomes increasingly toxic. Tony's grand ideals about community and happiness are evaporating into thin air. People begin to wonder, did he ever really care about people's lives? Or was he just always a ruthless businessman? This feeling only intensifies when the Downtown Project issues a statement in response to the layoffs and closures. We are optimistic and confident about the future of downtown Las Vegas and the continued growth of our entire portfolio of investments. Now, compare that to the DTP's original mission statement from 2012. We are a group of passionate people committed to helping to transform downtown Las Vegas into the most community-focused large city in the world. The Downtown Project rewrites their mission statement on their website, removing the word community as one of their goals and replacing it with a new word, connectedness. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, connectedness sounds far more ambiguous. I think it's a lot easier to just say, we're just a developer, we just build buildings, we just rehab motels, we just invest in restaurants. Alyssa Walker, the journalist who reported extensively from Vegas. It's a lot harder to try to say that you're creating this cohesive community um, with this shared vision and, and shared values. So I think it, it was probably just easier at some point just to define yourself as, as what you are and try to make money off it. Admits the turmoil and layoffs, David Gould, the DTP's director of imagination, resigns in protest. Gould had met Tony during his Delivering Happiness book tour and felt inspired to leave his job as a university professor and follow him to Vegas. He's been an evangelist of the DTP from the beginning, so his departure is a really big deal. On September 29, 2014, he publishes an open letter to his friend in the Las Vegas Weekly. Here are some excerpts from that letter. Dear Tony, the decision to join the Downtown Project's $350 million revitalization effort was based on three core beliefs. One, the project was engaged in a fascinating social experiment. Two, the project offered a unique opportunity to not only make a meaningful difference in downtown Las Vegas, but also enrich the lives of the people living in cities around the world. Three, it was led by a generous spirit. I was not alone. Some 400 to 600 people pilgrimage to Las Vegas each month to walk your 19-block footprint and to ponder the ideal that simply focusing on ROI, return on investment, is not enough. You claimed that the city of the future would require equal attention on ROC, return on community. And I intuitively knew that you were right. Though I've come to understand the formidable challenges inherent in transforming a city, 
the story you crafted was not only visionary, but attainable. So what happened? Many of the people who merged their voices with yours will find themselves without a job. This group will undoubtedly include numerous young adults who've not yet found your good fortune. As they've naively purchased homes and started families, this decision will impact them greatly. Business is business will be the defense from those you've charged with delivering the sad news. But we have not experienced a string of tough breaks or bad luck. Rather, this is a collage of decadence, greed, and missing leadership. While some squandered the opportunity to dent the universe, others never cared about doing so in the first place. As 2014 draws to a close, hundreds of people leave the DTP. So many people moved to downtown Vegas to be a part of this because they were so excited, like promoters and restaurateurs and, you know, artists. It was just like, it was really a a phenomenal talent attractor. Um, So if people didn't feel like the vision was still there or that they had joined something that wasn't really panning out or had changed significantly, they were just going to leave. By this point, the vision is completely muddled. The downtown project could have become anything at any time, right? It was always adding like, it's also this, and we also do this, and we're also doing this. As we've seen before, in the midst of crisis, Tony seems absent. There were a lot of stories about, you know, how he had become withdrawn and wasn't participating in the same way. You know, he was really this like very charismatic leader, And now we know he was really struggling during this time. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they almost described it as being in a cult. That was the word used many, many times um, in my conversations with people, both on the inside and on the outside. What drives that culture, it came from the top. And I think if if Tony was suddenly not interested in doing something, it wouldn't get funding or attention. It wouldn't get the support that it needed. And if once he changed his mind, it was a done deal. With businesses imploding and his former devotees fleeing, Tony changes his tune again. Just like that, the ambition he once had for the downtown project is gone. He says he'll continue to act as an investor and an advisor to the DTP, but he won't be involved in day-to-day operations. So, what now? Has our lifelong idealist given up on his vision? Does he still believe in delivering happiness? And what will he do next? Tony is stepping down, I think, from Zappos, and he's going to be creating a whole new thing up in Park City. Tony purchased seven properties around the Park City area, and the crown jewel of that property portfolio is this Crescent Ranch home, a 17,350-square-foot mansion on a private lake. Now, he envisioned creating a single moment of world peace or even making a single universal standard time for the entire Earth to operate on. That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. 
Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Tom Berry at Wardour Studios. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.